Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 56, The Wisdom of Crowds. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by Damien, Duke of Portland, Mary Jean Andrus, Countess of Cardigan, Baron Trucktar, Alexander, Baron Futar, Corbin, Baron Smith, and Blaze, Baron Graviak. Like all of our patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time we saw the end of the English Civil War. Charles I, now the first of three, as of September, finally saw reality. In the wake of Naseby, his armies and garrisons were defeated and surrendered piece by piece over the following year. In the end, the king put on a disguise, fled Oxford, and eventually turned himself in to the Scottish army near Newark. With his surrender, and his call to surrender to all of his followers, the English Civil War came to an end. For now. Over the last four years of the Civil War, and the last 30-odd episodes of the podcast, we've mostly focused on the military side of the war. It's a war, after all. So naturally, the activities of the men with pointy bits of metal, and pipes that go bang, are quite important. But war is more than just the story of those people trying to kill each other, and a civil war is even more so. We've already seen how the pressure of the English Civil War had helped fan the flames of the largest and deadliest witch panic in English history. The lethal antics of the Witchfinder General were just one of the more obvious illustrations of how the strains of the Civil War broke down social and political norms in England. Today, we're going to take a closer look at those strains, with a focus on regions controlled by Parliament because resentment over things like taxation, martial law, corruption, and conscription will transform public opinion towards Parliament. Where many had seen Parliament as a bulwark against the tyranny of the King, after four years of war and four years of wartime parliamentary rule, some people began to see the King as a bulwark against the tyranny of Parliament. The more things change. Before we get into that, though, I have to apologise for the long gap in episodes, unless you're binging packs years after this came out, in which case just keep enjoying it. As patrons and listeners who follow me on Twitter might know, I've had to travel back and forth all over the country over the last month or so for family emergencies of one stripe or another. 
That's not all finished, and I might need to travel some more, but I found enough time to put together a few scripts, and found myself in front of my mic long enough to record and edit. Of course, I've now picked up some kind of cold, but hopefully that doesn't come across too much, because I didn't want to leave the silence of episodes any longer. Alongside this episode, patrons of the rank of Earl and higher will find a bonus episode on the trial of William Lord, Archbishop of Canterbury, and one of the key figures causing this whole mess. He's been locked away in the Tower since before Charles fled London, and everyone, Parliament, the King, the Royalists, and possibly even you listening to this right now, basically forgot all about him. But eventually, the time came to see him off. But because we've gone so long without episodes, I'm making the first Patreon bonus episode I made available to all listeners on the main feed, which is a short biography of the Earl of Essex, Robert Devereux, from his birth up to the outbreak of the Civil War. I find it helps to explain the mindset of the fairly talented, but deeply insecure man that Parliament chose to lead their armies for the first half of the Civil War. Thank you all again for your patience. So the Civil War is over. The King has lost, Parliament has won, and now we have to count the cost. As with all numbers in early modern history, it's very hard to be certain, and when it comes to the casualty numbers of the First English Civil War, it's even more so. Michael Braddock puts the number at 62,000 deaths in battle, and notes that that is equivalent to the populations of the four largest English cities after London. Four entire cities worth of people dead. It's an enormous amount, but even so, that figure is based on press reports, formal battle accounts, and personal correspondence from those involved. And so there must have been countless small skirmishes, summary executions, and other violent ends that simply don't make it into the surviving records. Charles Carlton judges the number of battle deaths between 1640 and 1652 to be 84,830, which is a weirdly precise figure considering he then warns the reader to take that number with a pinch of caution. Ian Gentles puts the number at 75,000 battlefield deaths across England and Wales during the same period, and Peter Gaunt agrees with Braddock on the figure of 62,000 deaths for the First War. On top of these violent deaths, we of course have to add the tally of that ever-present partner of war, Plague. Braddock estimates around 100,000 deaths from disease caused by the war. In total, perhaps 1 in 10 adult men in England took up arms in the 1640s, and 3% of England's population died due to the civil wars. Gentles puts the death toll like this, quote, By whatever standard we use, it was a high price to pay for overthrowing an arbitrary king, crushing the menace of popery, and conducting an 18-year experiment in Republican government. End quote. These numbers vary in their date range. Some are for the entire period of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, others just for the First Civil War. And, of course, we have to consider the many wounded and injured survivors of the violence. How many men walked or were carried off battlefields with wounds they would forever suffer from? How many were permanently maimed? and left to the not-so-tender mercies of early modern society, or left scarred by their experiences in less obvious ways, carrying their trauma with them for the rest of their lives. 
That's not even considering the pain of families whose loved ones would not come back. Some villagers lost the bulk of a generation of young men in a manner that can't help make me think of the aftermath of the First World War. This is all to say that on top of everything else we talk about today and in future episodes, there were few people in England and Wales not touched, in some way, by the violence of the Civil War. Now let's talk about taxation, that thing which Charles and his father had wrestled with Parliament over for the last 40 years. As we are well aware of by now, Parliament's ability to levy taxation and provide the king with subsidies was the main method of convincing the sovereign to address the grievances of the kingdom. Parliaments were called, taxation was loyally voted, and the sovereign would listen to their subjects. Well, in theory, at least. Some monarchs were better at handling their parliaments than others. Charles was one of those others. His parliaments had been so difficult, so stubborn, that they began to withhold the taxation due to him as king. Their grievances strayed into matters he considered entirely his prerogative. Religion, foreign policy, his own marriage and the like. And as we know, Charles tried to find other methods to fund his government for 11 years, keeping costs low and finding money in novel methods, both ancient and innovative. Anything but taxation, because taxation required Parliament. When he finally accepted reality, at the heavily armed suggestion of the Scottish Covenanters, and called a Parliament, they now added all the arbitrary methods of raising revenue to the list of things the king shouldn't be able to do. Arbitrary taxation forced on an unrepresented population was unacceptable tyranny, and violated the ancient rights of Englishmen. But, once the Civil War broke out, Parliament quickly realised what Charles had known. Armies are expensive. At first, the Long Parliament called for voluntary contributions, just like they called for volunteers to their army, depicting themselves as the defenders of ancient English liberties against a king who had been so led astray. And Parliament did quite well out of these calls for donations. At first, the southern coastal cities, and London especially, were full of wealthy merchants and professionals who sympathised with the cause of Parliament. But when the Civil War didn't end quickly, and 1643 opened with no end in sight, those voluntary contributions were replaced with a more, hmm, efficient method of raising revenue. A monthly assessment was established in February 1643, and for years to come, this direct taxation would become one of Parliament's main methods of raising revenue. Parliament would pass an ordinance dictating how much money needed to be raised, and how much each county under their control would have to pay. Then, commissioners would be sent out, who divided each county along sensible lines, the hundreds or lathes and then further divided along parish lines, and then issued these parishes with a tax bill. How each parish allocated and collected these payments varied. In some, local authorities and community links meant that parishioners could arrange between themselves how much each household would pay, and once agreed, these amounts would be enforced by local constables. In parishes where this self-assessment was impossible, or otherwise failed, 
agents of the parliamentary county committees would rock up and enforce the collection. Like the Covenanters in Scotland, the English Parliament brought in an innovative new tax system, despite both of them railing against the innovations of Charles. MPs who had railed against the illegality of ship money now supported methods which raised far more money from far less willing taxpayers. The parliamentarian Lord Wharton justified these actions by insisting that Parliament could not be, quote, tied to law, for these were times of necessity and imminent danger. It won't surprise anyone to learn that these new methods of taxation were not popular. At least early on, there was an acceptance from some that they were a necessity, but as the war wore on, the resentment grew. A steady stream of petitions flowed from the counties to London, complaining of the burden Parliament's taxation was putting on the parishes, especially when they perceived unfair treatment. Why do we have to pay X amount, when the neighbouring county only has to pay Y? Things could be even worse if you were in a coastal county. New tariffs on imports to fund the war effort drove up costs and prices. And if you were an able-bodied man who knew your way around a boat, which many people in these fishing and trading communities did, you might find yourself picked up and impressed into the navy. That was on top of facing the threat of being conscripted into various armies. As unpopular as these taxes were, they were at least effective. An ordinary subsidy collected during parliamentarian taxation in the 1620s collected £55,000. Parliament's wartime assessment collected that in one month. This could be crushing to poorer families, and this was only made worse if they were unfortunate to live in the contested regions. Here, they might have to pay tax to both the King and Parliament, or face the consequences from either. In many cases, armies were billeted on the local populace, and expected to be fed from the supplies of these civilians. It should go without saying that these men often demanded far more from their hosts than just food and shelter. And as we'll see in a moment, some communities would demand justice. It's also important to note that this tax had to go somewhere, and not just into the pay chests of Parliament's armies. From independent tradesmen, to merchants, to guilds, to early companies, the Civil War could be very good money indeed. Whoere else would provide Parliament's armies with their guns, ammunition, horses and clothing? The military industry in England was tiny at the start of the war, just another way that England was extremely demilitarised. But, by the end of the decade, the Kingdom had enough domestic manufacturing that the new model army at its height could be outfitted with almost everything it needed from English manufacturers alone. Speaking of pay chests, something that will become very important in the next few episodes is the question of how to pay the new model army. Their wage was quite good, even for the infantry, and they very rarely went without food. That's more than can be said for other armies, and other parliamentary armies hemorrhaged deserters to the new model army. But their pay was constantly in arrears, and this would remain a common complaint during the years of peace. The infantry received, on average, between 1645 and 1647, only 76% of their expected wage, 
But, as Braddock notes, this was still an enormous redistribution of wealth. Their pay was meant to be £45,000 a month, so some £540,000 a year. Poor relief was only £100,000 a year in 1650. So even accounting for shorted wages, paying and supplying the new model army would be an enormous influx of cash into the English economy, to the soldiers themselves in the form of pay, and to those who sold them supplies in the form of business, even as the monthly assessment brought more into the state treasury than ever before. And lastly, in terms of economics, we should discuss sequestration. This was the process by which Parliament first confiscated the estates of known royalists, assessed their value, and then, once they pledged not to take up arms again for the king, the return of these estates after the paying of a fine. This was a huge moneymaker for Parliament, especially when these estates belonged to delinquents who could or would not be welcomed back. Their lands were then sold or gifted to loyal parliamentarians. In October 1646, for example, Oliver Cromwell was granted a pension of £2,500 from the income of the confiscated lands of the Marquess of Winchester. Sequestration and the threat of the confiscation of their property was a very effective tool for keeping moderate royalists and wavering parliamentarians in line. But for a parliament which was meant to champion the protection of private property, it was yet another wartime necessity which rankled in its hypocrisy. When we discussed the self-denying ordinance, I mentioned that there was a widespread belief that politicians who also acted as civil agents, as tax commissioners for example, were lining their own pockets, or otherwise unduly benefiting from their positions. Part of the reason for self-denial was to head off this growing resentment, to separate the people making decisions from those whose job was to carry them out. Stephen Roberts, in his chapter of the Oxford Handbook of the English Revolution, suggests that this wasn't necessarily true. He acknowledges that, if someone wanted to exploit their newfound position, they would probably try and cover their tracks, which might explain why there is relatively little evidence of wrongdoing, for either contemporary investigators to uncover, or historians to analyse. But even so, he notes that many of the honest radicals were actually honest. It was typical, he suggests that the amount of tax demanded by Parliament, the amount collected, and the amount deposited with Parliament, was almost perfectly matched. There was very little graft or over-enforcement. Blair Warden notes that the wartime parliamentary administration displayed how much talent, ordinarily excluded from royal government, was available. The, quote, records of the assessors and scribes and account keepers who served the standing parliamentary committees, both in the centre and in the localities, reveal an impressive degree of literacy, numeracy, and administrative competence, end quote. While there certainly are cases of corruption, Sir Arthur Hazelrig in County Durham is one such high-profile example of overreaching authority, Roberts argues that most of these new responsibilities fell on the shoulders of the middling sort, who had already had roles in local government before the Civil War. Yet the public perception was of abuse and exploitation by Parliament men who had risen far above their station. The self-denying ordinance 
helped with this reputation, but didn't shake it entirely. As the war had worn on, resistance to the demands of both king and parliament began to form into significant movements. Then and now, these groups are often referred to as clubmen, due to them usually only having basic weaponry, like clubs. They were especially common in the Midlands, South Wales, and the southwest of England, where territory was most contested and the hardships of the Civil War most obvious. But these local militias sprung up all over the kingdom. Obviously, there was no unified leadership beyond their wider localities, but generally, they called for both king and parliament to come to terms, end the war, and bring peace back to the kingdom. To stop both sides conscripting their children, their brothers and fathers, to prevent the rape and brutality of the women and children who fell under military occupation, to stop both armies requisitioning and straight-up stealing the necessities of life, to object to soldiers and officers being billeted in their homes and communities with only vague promises of repayment, to refuse to pay any more tax, to demand the return of the legal process of juries, common law, and local government. To sum them up, they wanted to be left alone to live their lives. The political and religious goals of the warring armies were none of their concern. Depending on the region and circumstances, some clubmen were less neutral than others. Lord Goring's behaviour in the southwest during the Siege of Taunton stirred up enough resentment that when the New Model Army arrived in Somerset to confront him, local clubmen gave their support to Fairfax. Yet in neighbouring Dorset, the clubmen saw Fairfax's army as interlopers and resisted. At times, the clubmen were in enough numbers to successfully ward off encroaching armies. At others, resistance from clubmen was quickly suppressed, with varying levels of violence. Parliament's Charles Fleetwood surrounded and dispersed a group in Dorset, whereas Oliver Cromwell engaged a force of clubmen in battle, killed 60, and imprisoned hundreds more. The growth of the clubmen was the exhaustion of the people on display, and it gave extra pressure to peacemakers on both sides of the Civil War. The patience of England was not infinite. Speaking of petitions, these weren't new. Petitions had long been a method for the elites of the kingdom to present grievances to the monarch, or, if it were in session, the parliament, and they were usually in the name of local institutions like a town corporation. They were formulaic, deferential. They were meant to make the authorities aware of an issue, but they would not be so crude as to allocate blame or demand a certain solution. Good heavens, no. But the crisis of the 1640s changed these rules. We've seen in past episodes how petitions became a tool of political warfare. They stopped being signed by a handful of local elites. They were printed, published, and spread to gain as many signatures as possible. They both claimed to express the opinion of the people, while also trying to shape that public opinion. Opponents of whatever position a petition was staking out organised their own counter-petitions, themselves claiming to be the real true voice of the people. Read aloud in the pub, preached from the pulpit, and presented at local gatherings for signature, petitions broadened political participation. Petitions also became far more representative. Farm and urban workers, apprentices, sailors, and, horror of all early modern horrors, 
women not only signed these petitions, but in some cases drafted them and presented them to Parliament, often to the discomfort of the well-heeled men who received them. When two competing petitions fought for signatures, it prompted would-be signatories to consider the merits of both positions, to come to their own conclusions. So, as limited in their results as they often were, the explosion in petitioning broadened political involvement throughout England. By being printed and distributed far and wide, petitions, along with the huge number of political pamphlets and news books which flowed from presses unhampered by censorship, helped create a national political culture that was neither uniform nor traditional. But just as petitions were far from new and just grew in importance during the crisis of the 1640s, so-called popular politics was also an established fact. But with the growth of that political culture and the opportunities provided by the instability of the civil wars, they took on new influence. In perhaps the most obvious way, the power of popular politics set the odds against the king before the civil war even began. By forcing Charles to flee London through fear for himself and his family, the London crowds deprived the king of his capital and all the resources and legitimacy it provided. As we saw way back when, these crowds had been stoked by critics of royal policy inside and outside Parliament. MPs and lords who supported the king were heckled and threatened, popular libels attacked ministers and even the queen. But we have to be careful of this traditional view of these events. The London crowds were not politically neutral before elite wordsmiths and politicians whipped them into a frenzy. They were, and had been, politically active all on their own. Just think of how many libels were printed and spread, how many ballads and songs were sung concerning unpopular royal ministers or policies going back into the reign of James, if not further. Popular politics was not new but the Civil War provided it new opportunities, especially with the collapse of censorship and the questioning of many aspects of life. John Walter described the London crowd as a semi-permanent feature of the revolution, always ready to be called into being and claiming a political voice. But the London crowd was not a uniform body. The same London crowd, which had demonstrated support for Parliament against the King in 1641 and 1642, would demonstrate for peace with the King later in the war. After the end of the First Civil War, the London crowd demonstrated in support of the New Model Army getting involved in politics, and also against the New Model Army getting involved in politics. The London crowd variously supported or opposed radicals in politics and religion, more on them in a future episode. The London crowd was certainly influenced by changing circumstances, especially the increasing financial burdens, but it's also important to note that this flip-flopping indicates a great variety of political thought in London. Conservative or radical, religiously tolerant or fiercely orthodox, supportive of limited monarchy or demanding justice against the person of Charles Stuart. There were constituencies of these positions throughout the capital, willing and able to protest or counter-protest, given the right motivation. For the next few years of the narrative and the next few episodes, we're going to see the results of this newly politicised society. 
the struggle between Charles and Parliament had opened a can of worms that both would regret, with the most blatant example being the politicisation of the new model army. The victorious army would become increasingly frustrated with their political masters, but that is for the future. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marquess of Winchester, Christian Sebast, and the Earl of Kildare, Nick Bunker. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put into any podcast app to listen to that podcast ad free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please recommend it to a friend or post about the show on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.